And so let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on Pastor Jeff and Rosa as they are taking a time to get away. We ask that you bring refreshing to them. Um, Lord, you know the weariness that comes into the life of pastors and uh, how they need to sit at your feet and have a time just to be with you. And so, Lord, we just ask that this would be a great time of just refreshment, of enjoying each other, and that you'd bless them mightily there and bless them when they come back. Give them a fresh word for the church and um, the wisdom and vision of what you want to do here. And, uh, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning, to each of us. Let us hear your word. Lord, I'm just asking for grace to be poured into our lives to live it out. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. I didn't realize when God called me as an evangelist that he did it at the absolute best time that it could be done. The Browns revival had just begun, been going on about a year, and uh, so the ministry of the evangelist was made extremely popular through that, and my ministry just exploded and took off, and so we were ministering all over the country, and um, it was just a phenomenal time. We saw God do some tremendous things, and um, I mean, we had just some wonderful encounters with God and seeing a lot of people saved and come to Christ, and what a privilege that we have. <clears throat> but we're kind of like pendulums. We go from one thing to the whole other side. We have wandering hearts, and we can know what we should be seeking after. We can know that we should be uh, people that have this fire, this passion after God, and this desire for Him, and, and yet it can be in our heart, it can be in our mind, and we can let it stray from us. And so that's why the subject of loving Him like we should, loving Him more, uh, needs to be a constant reminder, not something that is just occasional, because we all have wandering hearts. And the subject of revival needs to be something that is brought back to us again and again because we forget about it. Because if it doesn't happen right away, then you know what happens? We grow weary. We stop crying. We don't want the intensity. And so we let it slip. And then we find in the midst of it that we become more like uh, Laodicea than like uh, the early church that had the fire and the passion for God. And so I want to look at Ren the Heavens. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. What's going on here is you have a man that has grown desperate. And you don't pray such a prayer and other such prayers that are in Scripture. You don't pray such a thing unless you really come to a place of desperation where you start really seeing the need that's out there. And until we see the need in ourselves and in the church and in the world, we're not going to grow desperate in prayer and seeking after God and crying for God to run the heavens because it's easy for us to just kind of go with the flow. It's easy just to have a nice comfortable life, have a nice Christian walk, you know, and just do the things that we do, and why upset the cart? But if you've never been in the presence of God in a tangible, powerful, uh, soul-shaking way, then you don't know what you are missing. Because what happens is, is revival ruins you for nominal Christianity. 
You want to get ruined for just lukewarm status quo Christianity, then get in a move of God or seek a move of God and let God begin to awaken your heart. And you're going to come to a place where it's like you just don't want church as usual. You want God to, to reveal himself. You want God to show up. And it's really sad that the church has come to a point, at least whole portions of the church, that they don't even look for a move of God. They don't even desire it. They are so tied into the same thing week after week after week, year after year after year. There isn't even the idea of a move of God on the horizon. And that's sad because God wants to be a God that surprises us, that shows himself in spectacular ways, that 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 attracts us to him in new ways where he's he's speaking to us and revealing himself to us and showing us the wonder of who he is and what he can do in our lives. And so here you have a man that grew desperate. Why did he grow desperate? Well, I believe he grew desperate for a couple of reasons. One was his desire for God. But another was the desperate situation that he was in. Until we comprehend our desperate situation, we will not become desperate for a remedy. And you know, the reality is we're not really desperate for a move of God in America. Even though yesterday a man went into a grocery store and killed 10 people, shot 13. And then if I understood the, 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 the news correctly, I just looked at it real quickly, is that there was at the, at the uh, basketball playoffs, there was what, three more shootings, and I think three more people died if I heard that correctly. I might have that part wrong. I mean, we have to understand that the problem here, and this isn't political, I'm not saying this for any political purposes at all, but the problem isn't guns. The problem is the condition of people's hearts, their moral and spiritual condition. And that's what people won't look at. They'll go after the guns eventually because they'll say, well, we'll stop the problem. But the problem's never dealt with because it's not dealt with in the hearts of people. Until people change, nations will not change. Nothing will change as a result. It must be the transformation of people's hearts and minds. And until we are convinced of that, we're not going to be desperate. So there's flags at half staff. We saw it at the uh, post office as we drove by. And there's the people that are mourning and all the political pundits that are saying all their stuff, whatever that may be, and all the cries that are, that are happening out there. So how we should live at peace with one another. But none of them want to look at what the answer is. None of them want to see what the real problem is. That the problem isn't as what we politically say but that it's a problem of sin in our country. That we have unleashed through untold ways of opening the door to immorality. We fail to understand. So until the church comes to the place of desperation, we're not going to cry out for anything different. You understand? Until it gets so bad that it finally starts coming home to us, nothing's going to change. <clears throat> I was preaching in the Detroit, Michigan area when 9-11 happened. So that, what, Monday night that it happened, uh, the service that night was very different. I didn't preach the same message. We didn't go in the same direction. But after we were done with those services, we were heading into the New England states and we're driving down the main expressway that is heading into, that goes to New York City. And I've never seen it like that. It was like... Empty, no cars, nothing. There was just a few trucks, and you could tell that they were taking equipment, heavy equipment, probably 
to the World Trade Center. The thought was, this is an opportunity for God to bring people to salvation, to shake them, to see a nation's vulnerability, and that we need God, and we need Him desperately. And guess what? That first Sunday, there was a lot of people that were there at church. The next Sunday, the next place I ministered, there was less. And the third week, by the fourth week, it was all back to the same thing. Why? Because it didn't really touch all those other people. They heard it. They got scared. They thought about that, but they didn't do anything about it. There was very little change that happened in our nation from a spiritual dynamic. You see, until we become desperate, we're not going to pray desperately. We're not going to ask God to do something desperate that we need because we're not at the place of desperation. We're not really seeing the need. Now, we can have this sometimes in individuals' lives where the individual, his life or her life is out of control and they start getting desperate for deliverance from that and they cry out to God. So they might see something happen to them personally. But on a national basis or on a community basis, we don't see anything change because we are not yet at a place of desperation. Isaiah had a voice to speak to a backslidden church in a sinful nation. He was of the kingly tribe. He was actually family of the king. And he was prophet for four, through four different kings. He had the ability to know what was going on in the court, in the court of the king. He knew what was going on. He had eyes to see that which was natural. He could go and see the evil that was going on with these kings, the evil they were perpetuating. He could know the evil that was going on with the judges and all the things that were going on from the political basis of the nation. He could walk through Jerusalem and see the, the, the horrendous evil that was happening there and the idolatry that they set up in the corners of, of streets where they bowed down and worshipped. He could see all the abominations that they were doing. It was before their eyes. It's like today we can look at our nation and we can see all these evils that are happening around us. We can read the news and we don't know how much they're telling us the truth, but we can read it and at least know some of the evil that's really spreading through our nation at a tremendous level. But Isaiah also had eyes to see spiritually. As a prophet... God was communicating with him, and he was proclaiming these truths to the people. He knew the reality that their sins were rising up more and more and more, and that there would be a point that it was the, the straw to break the camel's back where finally God's wrath would fall upon the nation. I don't think we understand it. I don't think we see, even as a church, that we see spiritually very well. I don't think we really see where we are rushing to, the judgment that is coming to our nation and the judgment that is already on our nation. When you look at Romans chapter 1 and you read Romans chapter 1, there is judgment that has already begun, we are told. It's already begun. And what is the expression of judgment that is coming on upon a people? We always think that it has to do with some type of military action that, that were attacked or whatever. But here you have in this setting where God is turning them over to be the basest, vilest things that they can be as he removes his hand of restraint. And we see that more and more and more in our nation. Are we desperate 
because we see the truth of God's word and we see what people are practicing, the evil that they're living out, and we are now crying out, God, if you don't rend the heavens and come down, then, Lord, we are going to face your wrath. The idea to rend is to rip open. So the prophets say that you would rip open the heavens and step down, that you'd come down and put your foot upon this planet and shake this planet. And when you look at the history of revival, you see exactly that's what happens. When God rips open and he comes down and he manifests his power, tremendous things happen where you have in short period of time all these people rushing into the kingdom because they have been confronted with the reality of their sin. Strange, it's really heartbreaking on how much sin can be in the church in America today. I mean, just unbelievable sin. Unbelievable sin. At the top of the list is all the sexual sins that people are practicing and they think they're okay with God and they fail to understand that they are at war with Him. The Word of God becomes so clear, so, so, so blatant with it, and yet the denial of its reality thinking that there is something different with them, that they have a right to do what God has forbidden, and it'll all be okay because, well, we're saved by grace. And they fail to understand that as those who claim to be Christian practice sin, that they are only perpetuating a judgment on a nation as well. We're to be the remedy because Christ in us should be that remedy to a, to a perishing world. And so when we cry out to God that he would run the heavens. When we start growing desperate for God, what are some of the expressions of that desperation? And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at some of the expressions of what it is when this desperation starts rising up in us. And it's not going to happen unless we are willing to ask God for it. It's not just going to happen. It's going to happen only when we begin to say, God, I know what I should be. I know I should be desperate for you. I know I should be desperate for your move. I'm not somehow getting me there. I don't even know how to get there. And if you start crying out, I guarantee there's a move that begins to happen in your own heart. But the moment you stop praying is where your heart just slips back to where it once was. Because we have to fan in the flame, continually fan in the flame, the desire after God. And so this desperation... For God to run the heavens always begins with a desperation for God. Not a desperation for revival, but a desperation for God. And so what does God want of us? He wants us to become a people that desire Him to run the heavens because we want Him. Because we want Him to come to us. I have been in tremendous moves of God, tremendous outpourings of the Spirit of God. I have memories, tremendous memories of what God has done. So my heart has a point of reference and says, God, I ache for that. Do it again. Do it again. But when we don't, when people don't have the point of reference of tremendous moves of God, then we have the Word of God and we have the history of the church. And that's why I'm giving the book to, to you, that you might read about revival, that you might see what God has done, what God can do, what God wants to do again, that it might stir our hearts and say, God, this is what you've done, do it. I've never seen this, but my heart aches for your manifestation. I can't remember what revival it was, but I think it was the Welch, 1904 Welch Revival, but there was this man that was praying, and I think it was before the revival, and he was saying, oh, God, that you would bring revival without any of the abuses. But if you can't, just bring revival. 
You see, I'd sure like a revival, a move of God where there was no abuses, where there wasn't anything strange that happened, nothing out of the ordinary, nobody abusing it or whatever. But it's just not real. Revival is going to be messy stuff. God shows up and it's going to be messy. Part of it is messy because, you know, we're going to have, have you know, eyes filled with tears and snot running down our nose. It's going to be messy that way from the aspect of the emotion that's there. Sometimes people don't know what to do and they don't handle it like they should. And, and there's all these different dynamics that's there. But yet in the midst of it all, God is doing something and transforming lives. But what does he want more than anything? Us to desire him, to grow desperate for him, to say, God, I remember the times of what it was your presence to be so thick, so heavy. It felt like you were just wrapping your arms around me and the wonder and the beauty of your presence. To be thirsty after God, to be desires for him. In Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. There's a psalm that came out of a time when David was in the desert of Judah. He said, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. You see, he was desiring God because he had seen God. He had seen the glory of God. He had experienced the reality of what God can do, of what God has done in the past. And he says, God, I'm thirsting for you. But how was his thirst? Okay, you're not in a desert. I'm every year in the desert, ministering in the southwest and that. You know, there's just something about the desert. You know, you take, you, you get 90 degrees here. And, you know, you're sweating and it's just terrible. You get 90 degrees there and you get in the shade and it's not bad. You know, because it's dry. There's something different about it. You know, it just doesn't feel quite as hot. Now, you get in the sun, it feels hot. Okay? I mean, you get in the sun, it is it, it can be brutal, especially when you get 120. But when you are in that type of, of, of environment and it gets that hot, you see people all over the place carrying these big bottles of water because they understand they got to keep themselves hydrated because that temperature... That dry heat just sucks the moisture out of you. I mean, it's just, it, it, it just will dehydrate you so fast. David knew what it was to be in the desert. He knew what desert life was. He knew what it was to flee from Saul and Saul trying to cut him off. And if Saul could cut off David and his army from water, he could kill a whole, a whole army without even having to raise a spear. That's how serious it was. He knew what it was. Once he was so thirsty, he went to, and just, just spoke about how I wish I had a drink from the well of Bethlehem. That was his hometown. The well of Bethlehem, I thirsted. What happened? It was in Philistine territory. And some of his most mighty men go in and break through to get water for him. And yet here he is, just parched, his tongue fat, his lips chapped, and he pours it out and says, how can I drink that? Which would have caused the blood of these men to be spilled. He knew what it was to thirst, and then he takes that natural thirst, he takes that thirst that he knew that was just, just what it was to be aching for water, and then he equates that spiritually. He says, that's what I am on the inside. I am thirsting after God. I am thirsty. I am desperate for Him. I must drink of Him, because inside of me it is aching. It's yearning for this touch from God. It's not just that we have that struggle in our own selves, but we live in a land that is spiritually barren, destitute, a 
spiritual desert. One author made this powerful little point. He said, for the Holy Spirit to bring us further and do his glory, he must first dismantle our satisfaction with what God has already given us. What a statement. You see, he can't take us any further until some form of dissatisfaction rises up in us, say, God, I want more. Because we become people so easily satisfied with where we're at. Oh, yeah, sure, we'd like something to change. And usually the things we want to change are within the material realm. More money, a nicer house, nicer this, nicer that, or whatever. But God sometimes has to start touching those things. Because we put so much attention, so much upon that, that we fail to understand what the real treasure is like we sung this morning. Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. This yearning, passionate desire for God... I want to share with you a couple of accounts of revival. We need a point of reference. We need something to begin to understand. And when you look at revival, the history of revival, each revival has some things that are the same. They're all the same. It's going to be the aspect of the presence of God being poured out, conviction upon the lost, uh, you know, repentance, salvation, some dynamics that are there, the, the, the holiness of God made manifest. But there's also differences that allows the personality of the people group and the time and setting. And so this is going to be the Korean revival that took place at the beginning of the 19th century. Excuse me, the 20th century. And... Um, When you look at the history of Korea, Korea is this peninsula. And it became this battleground between China and Japan. And when these two nations fought, they often fought in Korea. So the people were once uh, the, the, the uh, subservient to China, then to Japan, and back and forth. They were a beat-down people. They were depressed people. They were people that were extremely poor. Originally, they were not Buddhists, but because of what came from China... And after they became Buddhists, and by the time that this revival happened, something like 99% of the population was Buddhist. Missionary William Blair spoke of the missionaries, and he says, We had reached a place where we dared not go forward without God's presence. Very earnestly we poured out our hearts before Him, searching our hearts and seeking to meet the conditions of revival. God heard us and showed us plainly that the way of victory would be the way of confession, broken hearts and bitter tears. What had happened to them is they had gotten hold of a track written by Charles Finney on revival. And they started praying over that. That's what they were desiring. They're saying, God, the conditions. Charles Finney wrote these conditions. God, we want to see this happen in our time with our own eyes. It was Monday night when God visited Penyang. After a short sermon, Mr. Lee called for prayers. The whole audience began to pray out loud. The effect was indescribable. The prayer sounded like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. The Holy Spirit came to us that night, not with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, but with the sound of weeping. A spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the whole audience. Someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fist in perfect agony of conviction. 
Sometimes after confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience praying together was indescribable. Oh, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping and we would all weep. We could not help it. Do you understand the conviction that he's talking about here? Conviction so great that people were throwing themselves to the ground, weeping and wailing and beating the ground in the aspect of the reality of the understanding that they were at war with God, that their sin was hostile to God, that it wasn't a little problem. You see, outside of revival, we beg people to come to Christ, and revival people beg Christ to come to them. That's a huge difference. Where the holiness of God reveals the wickedness of people. Shows what's inside of them that we thought was no big deal. Pet sins we played with for so long. And because of our distorted ideas of the grace of God, we didn't think much about it. We allowed it to be there. You know, we just go, oh, forgive me for that. And then continue in the same thing. Never true repentance. Never that which brought transformation. The consistently doing the same thing. Until God shows up and then we begin to see that sin is not a small matter. It is an offense to a holy God. It is an offense to a God that will deal with it. Either through the cross from repentance or from the wrath of God from rebellion. But we don't think like that in America today. We don't want that kind of message We don't want to really hear that because, you know, hey, I'm okay. You know, I'm saved by grace. We've made grace such a a cheap commodity that it's utterly worthless. Because we fail to understand how precious the grace of God is that he would offer us a way of escape. And so God wants us to become a people that are desperate for him. When we grow desperate for him, a desperation is going to come out of that. You know what that desperation is? It's a desperation for holiness. You have never yet had a genuine revival. There have been counterfeits. There have been some things that never became revival that would have been more renewalish, happened in the church and never went to a perishing world. Revival awakens the church and saves the lost. Okay, It's a simultaneous work. It's not one and then a different thing. It's a simultaneous work of what God's doing as he's saving the church, awakening the church, delivering the church from her sins. He's empowering the church and the power of God's flowing through the church to a dying world. Psalms 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Hands, tongue, and heart compose our characters. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He who is striving to have a character that is Christ-like, that is trying to have a character that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will be able to enter into that place of holy fellowship with Him? The idea of holiness has been so distorted. I mean, over... It's not something new. It's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years that it's been, you know, it's been distorted. The idea of what it is to be holy. And so what do we do? We can so easily be like the Pharisees and we have a list of these things. And if I don't do this and if I don't do that, I'm holy. And of course, okay, I got to go to church and do these other things. So therefore I'm holy because I'm not doing some things and doing other things. And there is no holiness in that. There is no holiness in that. 
The thing we have to understand about holiness is that it is 100% relational. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship. It's relationship with a holy God that demands those who will be in fellowship with Him that they are holy. That they pursue practical holiness in their life. And so the difference is humongous because the one, like a Pharisee, does his things that he does so that he can be supposedly right with God. But the other is a person that has a passion after God and wants to please him. And everything in his heart is wanting to please him. And so when God says, stop that, son, he says, yes, do this, son, yes, yes, whatever you want. It's a passion for God. It's a desire for Him that calls us to remove everything from our life. Why do we allow the pet sins in our life? Because we don't love Jesus enough to get them out. So we have excuses and we use doctrine to try and do that, such as cheap grace. But the more we fall in love with Him, the more our desire for Him increases, the more we want to be pleasing to Him, the more this, this yearning passion grows up in us, I want clean hands and I want pure hearts. I don't want to defile myself in anything. And when we do defile ourselves with sin, it breaks our heart and we throw ourselves at his feet. Says, Jesus, forgive me. Help me to stop this. Because there's a real desire burning inside of us for God himself. You understand this is serious. When God shows himself, every general revival, God has always showed himself as holy. And when he shows himself as holy, a holy God does what a holy God does, which is to reveal the unholiness in the people when he shows himself. So you know what that means? I have been in revival, and I have night after night had the conviction of God upon me, God going deeper and deeper inside of me, not him being picky, not him being critical of me, but him saying, child, if you want me to come closer, you've got to know me as holy. And there's some things in your life that's very unholy, and I've got to deal with them. We want his nearness. We must deal with his holiness. And his holiness is going to expose our unholiness. Yes, the blood of Christ cleanses us. And thank you for the blood of Jesus that is able to purify us from all sin. But there's something different because it's the work of sanctification. It's the purifying process of what God does in his people. And so he reveals his holiness to his people so he can do a deeper sanctifying work by exposing what's inside of them that they might change and be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. You understand this place of going nearer, closer, this desire of him. Holiness is never legalism. Legalism is never holiness. There is a huge difference between the two. Nobody can be right through legalism. Nobody can be pleasing God through legalism. They might be religious. They might have all the trappings of religion on them. But they are not right with God through legalism. It's only the aspect of holiness where God purifies us with His blood and through a desire of Him that we want the sanctifying work of God to get the sin out of our life, to get the world out of our life, to walk in the place of liberty. Because one reason, we want to fellowship with Him. We want greater relationship with this God that's inviting us near to Him. The privilege of this is beyond anything that words could ever describe. But this is what He offers us. 
the second night of revival in Korea. It was at a Tuesday night meeting. We were aware that bad feelings existed between Pastor Kang and Pastor Kim. Pastor Kang confessed his hatred for Pastor Kim Monday night, but Pastor Kim was silent. As the meeting progressed, I could see Pastor Kim sitting with his head down. Bowing where I sat, I asked God to help him. Bolting up, I saw him coming forward. Holding to the pulpit, he made his confession. I have been guilty of fighting against God. I have been guilty of hating not only Pastor King, but missionary William Blair. Turning to me, he said, can you forgive me? Can you pray for me? I stood up and began to pray. Father, Father. But I got no further. It seemed as if the roof had lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. I fell down at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I have never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Others stood with arms outstretched towards heaven. Every man forgot every other. Each was face to face with God. I can yet hear that fearful sound of hundreds pleading with God for life and for mercy. The cry then went over the city until the heathen were filled with consternation and fear. You see, when God awakens the people of God, it flows to the people of God to a dying world. Or we become the dam that stops it. And so if we want the flow of God, the flow of the Spirit to work through us, then we have to become a people that allow it, that embrace it. That we want to remove anything and everything that dams that up. And we have to understand that's what sin is. Sin is like a dam that we build up in our life to stop the flow of the Spirit. And you may think it's small and insignificant, but all sin is lawlessness. All sin is lawlessness. So it's irrelevant what sin, you name it. It's lawlessness against God and it builds a dam in our life. And this, this desperation for God means that we want to start pulling down that dam, brick by brick by brick, until, the, until it's open that the flow of God is flowing through us in tremendous ways. So that is really our choice. What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to allow Him to do this work in us? Are we going to dam up the work? Because we have doctrine that goes against what I'm saying here. Well, the problem is, is I think I'm being very sound in doctrine. <laughs> When we have a desperation for God, He's going to grow in us a desperation for holiness. And this will produce also what I dealt with Wednesday night. A desperation for prayer. How can we be desperate for God and not want to spend time with Him? I mean, it doesn't make sense. People that say they love God and don't have a prayer life, they don't love God. They have sentimental notions about Him, but they don't have real love for Him. Because real love always has a particular action to it. Such as comes out in John 14, chapter 14 and 15, where six times in those two chapters he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And one of those times he puts it in the negative, if you don't obey me, it's because you don't love me. So what is an expression of love for God? Obedience. What is the greatest commandment? To love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
So if we are going to obey, if we are going to love him, we have to obey him. And to obey him, we have to love him with everything. When we're not loving with everything, we've got to have the courage to deal with it at the foot of the cross and say, God, forgive me for my self-love. Forgive me for this love of the world. Forgive me for these other idols that are in my life. Help me to come to the place that I love you more than life itself. And if you think you love him that way, then you really don't even know yourself. Because none of us have arrived. None of us have reached that place. A desperation for prayer. The early church exploded. And we are given a little picture of why it exploded. Okay? And we know this, it was the uh, outpouring of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of uh, uh, on the day of Pentecost, okay, Acts chapter 2. But if we continue reading in Acts chapter 2, we come to verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves. And that word devote means to give themselves over to, to fully pursue, to make it the consuming thing in their life. They devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the gospel's. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of the saints. They met with each other constantly because they knew that they needed each other, but they also loved each other, and they built one another up, and they labored with each other for the glory of God. And then it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which is all about the cross, not about communion itself, but about the cross being central to the early church. And they devoted themselves to prayer. They gave themselves over to those realities. That's what they pursued. That's what defined them. That's why the power of God was made manifest to them in such tremendous ways until you start seeing the church straying after two or three decades. And then you have eventually Revelation 2 and 3 written because some of the church had strayed so far away from God. Why did they stray? Because they went and failed to continue being truly devoted to God by God's standard of devotion. Prayer is not to be something that we add to our life. It is to be something that defines our life. I might have told this little story before. I don't tell it very often. I don't want it to be misconstrued or people think that it's something of pride or anything else. I was saved out of a life of drugs. Radically saved brought into a church that was in revival, the real thing. The things I saw, the things I experienced, the presence of God was just phenomenal. After being saved nine months, and, you know, I was a hippie. I dealt drugs occasionally to try and keep myself high. It didn't work. It didn't want to work. I just wanted to party. That's all it was. And so I get saved, and I went and got a job. And uh, then after nine months, the pastor comes to me, and he ends up saying, I want you to move into what, we, what was called the living ministry. It was a, a, a loose discipleship ministry of where uh, I lived with 26 other guys. So it was just really this radical environment. And, uh, you know, just wonderful memories I have of the three years that I lived there. And um, I can't even tell you how it happened. I don't know. I, don't, I can't put my finger on a sermon. I can't put my finger on anything anybody said. It just started happening where I had this drawing of God to hide away with him. I mean, I'm saved a year. You know, and I'm starting to hide away three hours a day. I mean, it was like I'd get up in the morning and, and I'd, I'd take an hour with Jesus. When all the guys started having dinner, 
I'd go and hide away in the chapel for an hour to spend time with Jesus. And then when everybody's sitting around like 11, 12 o'clock at night, I'd go to the chapel and have a time with Jesus. I just began to walk back and forth in the front of the chapel and just loved being with him. I just loved the presence of God. And if, if somebody was there, I'd go and walk through a, a nearby park and just remember times of just walking and weeping because God being so good and wonderful and learning how to enjoy his presence so much. That became a definer of my life. That opened the door to me being called in the ministry. That has defined my ministry. Gideon Bounds said, failure to pray is failure not of life. It is failure of duty and spiritual progress. It is only by prayer that God can help people. He who does not pray, therefore robs himself of God's help and places God where he cannot help people. He who is too busy to pray will be too busy to live a holy life. You see, this the reality. The more we want Jesus, the more we love Him, the des- more desperate we grow for Him, the more desperate we're going to be to be holy. And the place of power to be holy is in that place of prayer, that place of enjoying being with Him, of loving Him, of that place of nearness. Every revival is always in one way or another an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? We have to become a people that are desperate for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Desperate for Him to show Himself. Desperate. Where we start giving the Holy Spirit preeminence. We start allowing Him to, to rule, to, to lead, to guide, to pour out His power, to do what He wants within the, the body of believers that the church would be edified, but even through the edification of the church that lost might be saved. You see, Sunday morning service is not about the lost being saved. It's about the church. Okay, it's about the church, pressing in to worship God, to know God. This whole seeker-sensitive stuff is so off the wall, it has nothing to do of the biblical reality, okay? It has nothing to do with it. But you know what happens when the church presses in and the presence of God begins to fall? Because they're pressing in, they're worshiping God, they're drawing near to Him. You know what happens? The presence of God comes and convicts the lost, and the lost gets saved. We've got to understand the plan of God is not to remove the Holy Spirit, that we might see people saved, but it's the total opposite. That we get more of the Holy Spirit in the church that He might save. That this power would be there, not just to save those that come, but would draw people. A thing that is referred to as divine magnetism. And I have seen this where we're just like one particular thing in Bullhead City. I was preaching in Bullhead City, Arizona. And all of a sudden this man ends up in church and he gets saved that day. And he, was, he just woke up in the morning and he says, i got to go to church. And he starts going to a church that he knew of. And it, an unsaved man, and God says, not there. So he turned around, and he ended up at that church. Well, he heard the gospel. The presence of God was there. The man came to salvation, was transformed. That's what God does. The more he is there, the more that divine magnet is there, the more it draws people to it. Draws them in. I might have told you the story from the Browns of Revival. But if I have, just forgive me for telling again, but it's a great story. There's a man that was a plumber. He was a master plumber. And so he went out to give an estimate on a job. The revival had broke out, been going on just for a little bit. He goes into this home, and the woman was a Catholic, a staunch Catholic. He goes into the home, and he starts 
writing up a bid, and all of a sudden he breaks down, he just starts weeping, and he, see, weeping uncontrollably, he can't stop it, and then finally goes, says, lady, I, I can't tell you what's going on, God has shown up in my church, it's, I've never seen anything like it, it's awesome, and, and I'll, I'll come back later when I can, can control myself. Well, the woman was so shaken by this, she never even saw such a thing, heard such a thing, imagined such a thing from her church upbringing, that she goes to the revival. She gets saved. And then it sweeps through her whole Catholic family. Not because a man had all the right words to say, but he went with the presence of God upon him and just began to weep. Just began to weep. And what was it? The Spirit of God flowing through him touched that that woman and convicted her of the reality of her sin and her need of a Savior. The second night of Korea, the account is given from missionary William Blair. Then began a meeting the like of which I had never seen before, nor wish to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion and agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of their judgment saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of man forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten. Nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed a small consequence if only God would forgive. Do you have any idea of what it is for God to show up like that? When we are desperate for God, He's going to put in us another desperation. A desperation for the lost. You know, we can't muster it up. We can know we should care about people that are going to hell. But it doesn't mean we're desperate for their salvation. It doesn't mean we invest much in time of prayer. You know, it just means we know what we should be, but aren't. Psalms 102, verses 19 through 20. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. You see, he looked down. He came to Moses and spoke to him through the burning bush. And he says, I have seen the oppression of my people. I am coming down to rescue them. Now go, I'm sending you. Do you understand what he said there? He says, I'm coming down to rescue them. But how I'm going to rescue them? I'm going to rescue them through you. You are going to be my agent. You're going to be my ambassador. You're going to be the one that I use to touch a hurting, dying world. Or in this place, to touch the, the Israelite people. I am coming down and I want to touch this community through you. It's through you that it's going to be done. And if it's not done through you, it won't be done. But that means that you must become a people that have this passion, this desperation for the lost to be saved because we start having the heart of God. We start being moved by what moves the heart of God, what brought him to this planet to die upon the cross that we could be forgiven. Because Korea was that battlefield between China and Japan, there was tremendous animosity and hatred. 
The Koreans hated the Chinese, and the Chinese the Koreans, and the Japanese hated the Koreans, and the Koreans hated the Japanese. I mean, tremendous animosity. The revival is going on for a little bit. I mean, God is sweeping through. Today, over 50% of the population in Korea is Christian because of that revival. A Buddhist nation, 99% Buddhist. But God was doing so much in the nation that their hearts started going beyond. And you got to understand the church was poor. We're not poor. Okay? In America, we're not poor. They were poor. And so they decided to have a convention. And they would have these men come in and preach. And then at the end of the preaching, they would take an offering. And what they would do is they would call for a couple of people to be willing to go into Shanchung, China and begin a mission there, never to come back. We're giving you this money to go there, either live or die. And so they had the meeting. They had the preaching. They had all the preparation and all the words. And then finally, it came to the end. And they went and says, is there anybody here that is willing to go to Shanchung, China, and live among the people and die among the people that they might know Christ. Silence. And then one man stood up. And then another man. And then another, and another, and another, and another, and another. Soon all these men were standing, and they began to cry, Send me! Send me! Send me! They were begging to go. There were so many that they couldn't even decide who to take. They were begging to go. You know what we do in America? We beg. Well, anybody, please help with the children. Right? We've got it so backwards because we don't have a fire burning in us. We have no passion in us. We have no desire to take the Word of God and give it, whether it's to children or to adults. Because we become so self-absorbed, so absorbed with our own wants, so absorbed with our own desires. That's why in a church you normally only have, and I think it's higher here, but in a church you normally have something like 5 to 7% of the of the people that are involved in ministry. What does the rest of the people do? Absolutely nothing. Show me one verse that supports such a Christianity as that. But when God shows up, people beg God. Beg God, please God, send me, send me, send me, send me somewhere. Use me. Do not let me die in this place of uselessness. They need us out there. They really do. They need us to have the fire. They need us to have the zeal of God. They need us to be a people that are aching for revival until it comes. And then when it comes that we are aching to keep it so that God might continue to save and bring them in. Whether they come to this church or not is secondary. It's whether they get into the kingdom of God. The final thing I want to share When the church grows desperate for God, God begins to waken something in the lost and they grow desperate to be saved. How many of us have talked to unsaved people, witnessed to unsaved people, and it's like you're talking to a brick wall? Hard heart. 
And yet when God shows up, there'll be people out there still with hard hearts, people that don't want anything to do with it. But all of a sudden, those who you might not have ever thought begin to have tender hearts and they start wanting God's salvation. The desperation. I can't tell you how much I long for this. I have seen hundreds of people running to altars to get saved. I have been at altars praying for pastors and youth pastors and associate pastors to get saved because they weren't walking with Jesus because they were in some kind of sin, whatever it may be. I have seen what it is where people get desperate for salvation because they come to the knowledge that they are not saved, that they are not right, and they need the salvation because they understand the reality of their sin. They are horrified by their sin, and they want to be free from it. They don't want the weight upon them. They don't want the judgment upon them. They don't want the eternal wrath upon them. And so people become desperate. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ah, sinful nation. A people loaded with guilt. A brood of evildoers. Children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. I think about that so much, that statement. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should we continue continue in sin, continue allowing the things in our life that is heaping upon us, sour upon sorrow. Why should we continue in it and think that we're going to continue in it and something different is going to happen out of it? Why should you be beaten anymore? If there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus, why should you continue in sin and to suffer as a result of your sin? Why should you continue in your rebellion against God, resisting Him, even though... Inside you are hurting. You know, I remember what it was. I remember very, very clearly what it was that brought me to Jesus. It wasn't my drug addiction. It wasn't the crazy life I was living. You know what it was? It was loneliness. Loneliness. No matter what I did, there was this ache in me. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what it was. I had no words for it. I had no ability to comprehend it. But yet it was there, this hurt inside of me. And then in that park where I gave my life to Christ, it was something that was so astounding that instantly this weight of sin was just, just washed off me. And all of a sudden, I belonged. I was His. When you grow up in a home that has nothing but division and divorce and remarriage and divorce again and all the contention and all the strife and just, you know, you're, you're a child thrown aside at one moment and in the midst of the divorce, he's, your father's clinging to you and then gets another wife and you're thrown aside and this the whole thing goes on and, and you want to belong. And all of a sudden, in Christ, I belonged. I was His. What a wonderful Savior. Father, I come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. If there's anyone here that is not right with you, that's a backslider or has never given their life to you, God. Even that loneliness that I refer to, God, I ask that you tug upon them. 
Lord, I know what that loneliness is. I know what that is. I know that emptiness, oh God. And Lord, it was not unique to me. It's a consequence of sin. It's what happens in this place of being separated from God. And yet, Lord, you call to us, you plead with us that you might become this wonderful God that fills us. But we have this sin problem, this, this division between us and you. And Lord, I'm asking for anybody here that is not right with you that they would want to come and run to you and find this place of forgiveness, find this place of mercy, find this place where they belong to you. They come home and they are yours, O oh God, where they find this wonderful acceptance from you, Jesus. And so Lord, I'm asking for anybody here that is not a follower of you, that they would come home to Jesus. But Lord, I'm asking for an awakening in your church, awakening in our hearts, awakening, O oh God, that we would grow desperate, desperate for revival, desperate for you, desperate in the place of prayer, desperate for holiness, desperate for the lost to be saved. And Lord, this isn't something we can do ourselves. We can't manufacture this. We can't force it to happen. But yet, Lord, you have given us the power of prayer that we can begin to cry out, that we can begin to ask. And Lord, we know that we ask, whenever we ask according to your will, that you hear us and you answer, O oh God. And we know that such a prayer, to have a desperation for you, is right and pleasing and acceptable to you. And we know you hear and we know you respond. And so, God, I cry out for the church that you would do a work in their hearts, in their lives, O oh God, that you would awaken us. There's a dying world out there that desperately needs us to have a passion burning inside of us for you. They need us to be living epistles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We need to be a people that are devoted to you, devoted to your word, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship, and devoted to the preaching of the cross, so God. Lord, take us there. In the precious name of Jesus.